1: Some of you already know this about me, but had the Lord not put me in a position of giving me a spiritual gift to be a pastor and a preacher, I would be some sort of manager or administrator. I enjoy doing it. I like Excel sheets. I like checking off tasks. And for my life and for my family and even in my ministry, I enjoy my task list. I know this is perhaps outdated, but I still use Outlook. Outlook. And I have my tasks on there. It's part of my calendar. And day by day, I'm reminded of what to do. And there's little things on there. Remember to water the plants on Monday, for example, or take out the trash. But even bigger things. You would think as someone who's been a pastor just even at this church for over 10 years now, that I'd have my daily study down. But no, it's right there on my task list. Mondays, word study, for example. But there are bigger things on there as well. For example, just this past weekend on my task list, list, which shows up every few months, was change my son's feeding tube. It's a medical device. He's needed it to survive for the majority of his life. It's a big deal. But despite its importance, it's a simple rubber and plastic device. It wears out. It needs to be changed every few months especially as half of it is constantly exposed to stomach acid. So on the one hand, you may think, well, of course, that's not something you want to forget. Put it on your task list. It's a big deal. You don't want that thing rotting. You don't want it falling out. You don't want him ending up in the hospital with bigger issues. On the other hand, you could ask, why would you need to put something that significant on your task list? It's a huge deal. You really need to be reminded along with water the plants to change out your son's life-saving medical device. But here's the thing. As with many other significant issues and practices in our lives, we get used to it. It loses its novelty and perhaps even its feeling of importance. And so you need to be reminded. So it is with the gospel. So significant in the believer's life that you want to respond to it daily. You want to remember to respond to it daily in practical action and thought. But so significant, you may feel guilty sometimes that you need to be reminded to respond to the gospel. But it is because of the existence of this tension, this reality that this morning I want to give you three action items in the task list of faith. Three action items in the task list of faith. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. As I mentioned earlier, we start a new chapter and a new study, a new topic from the Apostle Paul in chapter 15. And this morning we'll cover verses 1 and 2, where he actually doesn't address the particular topic but introduces a bigger issue to segue into that topic. Follow along as I read verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. As we've seen over these many, many months throughout 1 Corinthians Paul is addressing various questions, issues, and even sins that are within the ancient church of Corinth. And each topic that we have seen is addressing one of those questions they've submitted or an issue in the church that someone has told him about. And here he begins a new topic because of their misunderstanding of the resurrection, both of the believer's resurrection as well as Christ's. And to introduce this topic, of course, he begins with the gospel. So three action items in the task list of faith. The first action item, pass on the gospel as it was passed on to you. Action item number one, pass on the gospel as it was once passed on to you. I find this in uh, verse 1a. Where he writes, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. As a side note, when you hear someone say verse 1a or verse 3b or c, that is not a set understanding as with our verses. It's really just whatever partial section of that verse the pastor or the teacher is using. And so you see part a here is most of the verse. And we'll get to part B later. Back to the text. When Paul says, now I make known to you, he's not implying that this is the first time he's telling them the gospel. We know they are believers. Even in this verse, he calls them brethren. So surely they have heard the gospel before. And what he's doing with this phrase is drawing attention to something very important that he's about to say. It's similar to saying, I want you to listen up right now. And you know whatever that person's about to say is extra important. And it has the force of reminding someone of something important. In fact, the ESV and the NIV say, I want to remind you of this, the gospel. Now we know that what he wants to remind them of is not just something important, but that which is of utmost importance, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truths, the message by which they were saved and by which we are saved. And although he introduces this for the sake of segueing into the resurrection later on in the chapter, he's not merely referring to the resurrection here. As we will see next week, it's the entirety of the gospel, which includes the life lived, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The record of Paul preaching the gospel to the Corinthians is found back in Acts chapter 18, where we read that he went there on his second missionary journey. He spent some 18 months there, and where he preached, and people received the gospel, and the church was established there. And this is what he's referring to when he says that he preached the gospel to them, and now he wants to remind them of the gospel he once preached. But what is the gospel? The word gospel literally means good news. And this is kind of fun. The word preached is actually the verb form of the word gospel in the Greek. And so it means to proclaim the good news. He's essentially saying, I gospelized the gospel to you. I proclaimed the good news. And of course, we know that in just our understanding, but also the grammar in the Greek tells us this isn't just any good news. This isn't the good news of the day. This isn't the the news story, the headlines, the family updates. No. The grammar tells us there is one particular piece of good news and it is the message of salvation. It is this one message, this particular good news, this only gospel that He preached to them and to others. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that characterized not just His ministry with the Corinthians, but His life and ministry in total as it should be with us. And like us, the Corinthians, Paul goes on to say in verse 1, received this good news and that's why they exist as a church, as a people of God, as the redeemed. Not just as an entity, not just as a church, not just corporately, but all of them listening to this letter being read as individuals. And just as there is only one good news that Paul is preaching, so the tense of the verb received indicates a one-time past act of reception of that good news. This is synonymous with their conversion. Upon their reception of the gospel, they became Believers, they were saved, they were converted, they were redeemed. Because their response to the gospel like yours was not a mere thank you. It was not merely a cordial acknowledgement. It was a life-changing, eternity-securing power. And part of that life change was a new king, a new purpose, a new Lord. Once an enemy of God, now a child. Once enslaved to sin, now free. Once destined to damnation, now promised eternity with their Savior. I don't know who it was. I don't know when it happened. I don't know what you were doing or where you were, but if you are a Christian here this morning, at some point someone did the same for you. Maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a relative, maybe it was a stranger at a bus stop. Maybe it was an actual conversation or an email or a recorded sermon or tract that you found in the workplace. Whatever, whenever, wherever, whomever, it changed your life forever. And perhaps second only to the privilege of having this standing before God is the privilege of doing the same for others. Preach the gospel. We will see later that Paul says that he was given this truth that He gave the Corinthians. He is not the originator of it. He is in the middle of this chain of transmission. And you too were given this truth. So I ask you, whom are you going to give it to? There is a reason we call it the Great Commission, not a Great Commission. It is the purpose of your life on earth. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Are you? Are you ashamed of the gospel? At face value, when we look at that word, I don't think anyone would say, I'm ashamed of the gospel. But then why aren't you proclaiming it? Ashamed is a strong word to be sure. But aside from the defining characteristic of feeling shame, The word also means to be unwilling or restrained because of the fear of shame or ridicule or disapproval. So with that understanding, are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you afraid of what preaching the gospel or living out the gospel loudly and publicly and righteously and frankly, just biblically, will garner in terms of the negative attention from others? You don't feel it. Maybe you don't even know it. You don't see it. But you hold the baton. You hold the baton of those who have come before us. The great cloud of witnesses who are at this very moment are telling us that we can press on, carry on, preach on, just as they did, and just as someone faithfully did for you. Pass on the gospel as it was passed to you. It will never stop, at least not until the Lord returns. We don't need to fear that a generation will come or that the world will become so wicked that people will stop preaching the gospel. We know even under the great persecution of the tribulation, People will be preaching the gospel even at the risk of death. At the risk, as some believe, of literally losing their heads. As some are doing around the world right now. This is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you as an individual. Do you drop that particular baton? Because you're done. Do you feel like you're the last leg of that relay race and there's no one else to pass it on to and we just kind of wait till the award ceremony comes in heaven? Or are you passing on the gospel as it was passed to you? I don't think anyone is looking at me saying, What? How dare you? But a lot of us are feeling guilty right now Because we're not doing it. And when we do it, we mumble it out. We we give it partially without the resurrection. Or we make apologies for it. While we are running the race fervently and passionately for that career goal. That family goal. That relationship goal. That worldly life goal. Oh yeah, batons are made of metal. It won't rust. It won't tarnish. I'll pick that up some other day. Maybe someday there'll be an opportune time. Maybe someday someone will ask me. They probably won't. But maybe you think they will and you can go dust off the baton and preach the gospel and you say, you know what? I just fumbled through my words because you haven't even thought about the gospel in so long. Preach the gospel. Preach Jesus Christ. Do you understand in all your complaints about the world and what's going on, it's because people need the gospel? Yes, vote. Yes, speak up. Yes, post your memes. If you're into that kind of thing. But you know that no matter how many band-aids you stick on that individual, it won't cure their cancer. They need the cure. You can talk about how bad cancer is. You can give me statistics of how many people have died of cancer. You can tell me how there's still no cure for cancer. But that does your friend with cancer no good. Get them to the doctor. Get them to chemo. At least give them the option to say no, as some people do. I'm just going to die from this. I'm not going to go through the ordeal. That's their choice. But at least give them the choice. Preach the gospel. That's action item number one. Our second action item in the task list of faith is preach the gospel. No, I'm just kidding. Remember the stable foundation of your faith. Remember the stable foundation of your faith. The end of verse 1 into the beginning of verse 2, speaking of the gospel in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. Paul moves from past to present. The word stand refers to a present state based on a past action a present reality based on something that happened in the past. In other words, because of their previous past receiving of the gospel, they are now receiving and experiencing ongoing results. We understand this. It's the Christian life. Results such as their position in Christ and before God, eternal security and abiding faith, not to mention the millions of practical, real-world blessings of being saved in this life. And then, Paul moves from the present to the future. In verse 2, he says of the gospel, "...by which also you are saved." As with the word stand, the grammar shows us that he is not just talking about a moment in time. The saving that Paul speaks of is a continuous action. It is ongoing. It is still happening. It is now being worked out in the believer's life and it's preparing something for the future. So both a process that is happening now as well as a reality that will occur in the future. Back in chapter 118, he spoke of believers as those who are being saved. Same idea. To clarify, this does not negate justification by faith. That is done. It's a moment in time. It is finished in the past for anyone who is a believer. The singular point in time by which you were or at which you were redeemed once for all. But we know that salvation can either, in the Scriptures, refer to that one and done point in time in the past, justification, or it can refer to the entirety of the process of salvation that begins with justification, continues with sanctification, and one day ends with glorification. And it is this second sense that Paul is using here. If that's confusing, maybe it'll help to say it's kind of like the word life or alive you can refer to the moment at time that you became alive, that you were given life at the moment of conception. Or you can say, I'm alive, speaking of the ongoing process of enjoying life and living life today. But that's all grammar. We haven't even talked about the definition of the word saved. The word means to deliver, to rescue then placed in a position of security or freedom from whatever it is you were rescued from. As believers, we are saved from our sin. That's what you are saved from. Secondarily, hell, but primarily you are saved from your sin. And of course, the consequences of it is that He pushed me out of the way. I was saved from that moving bus that was about to hit me. Well, naturally, that also means you are saved from death. Death. And so it is with us, we are saved from sin and that naturally includes hell and the consequences of sin. So for the believer, we are not just saved and placed into a position of security like that kid on the sidewalk being pushed from the moving car. We are placed into a position of joy that we experience and we live out day by day. This is a reality that all believers know. Being saved is so fundamental to Christianity that it is synonymous with the name or the title Christian. Are you a Christian? Are you saved? We use those terms interchangeably. But we need to be careful. We don't don't want to become so familiar with this concept that we lose our excitement and the practical realization of what this means. Think about it. If you were saved from your own sin, then what else were you saved from? In other words, what else was the reality, the very real situation that you were in before you came to saving knowledge of Christ? God, as a creator of mankind, for the purpose of mankind, glorifying Him, did not see sin and say, yep, saw that coming. No. No. He was angry. Violently so. You ever tiptoed around someone because you know if you get that person angry, they get violent? They say or do things that will hurt you emotionally or physically? That's sinful anger. Not so with God, but you get the point. He was angry. An anger that turned into wrath and judgment a wrath and judgment that explain the existence of hell. It wasn't just eviction from the Garden of Eden, but eviction from a relationship with him. And not just a lifelong enmity, but an eternal one in constant pain and damnation. This is what we all once were and faced. And this is why we must find security and joy in our salvation. To remember not only what we have now, but also what we once deserved. The Bible, the very words of our gracious and loving God, uses the terms children of wrath, children of the devil, and enemies to describe what we once were. Not what the worst of us were. Not what some of us were. But what all of us were. And now, children of promise. Children of God. Fellow heirs with Christ, to name but a few. I get it. We live in a world that is stained and controlled and driven by sin. And we, though still saved, still sin as well. And when all of that sin in society and all the sin in our heart is combined, there is a pressure in life as we await eternity with Jesus Christ. We have struggles. We have doubts. We have fears. Because of sin, our bodies are prone to pain and aging and disease and death. What's worse, our loved ones are prone to pain and aging and disease and death while well, we can do little more than watch it happen. This afternoon, most of us go home to homes that are still majority owned by a bank. Others of us go back to homes in which we own some of what's inside the walls, but none of the walls. So we struggle and we toil to pay our bills, to stay afloat, to survive. Day after day, we witness the tragedies of life, endure the difficulties of just living And so we look at all this and we say, yes, I'm a Christian. Sure, I'm saved, we say, but I got this to deal with. Yes, yes, I'm saved, but he is still hooked up to those machines. Christians, we have it all wrong. In fact, we have it backwards. The reality is, sure I have bills, but I am saved. Sure I'm sick and I'm going to die. I'm weak and I won't recover, but I am redeemed. Sure I doubt. Sure I struggle. Sure I sin. But I am a child of God. Remember not the foundation of your faith. Remember the stable unwavering, unchanging, eternal foundation of your faith. The realities of this, the realities of this are unassailable. For I am convinced, Paul writes, Romans 8.38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including angels and demons, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of that will change. And you know what is just the icing on top? What makes this even more wonderful and beautiful Back in our text, Paul says, not that we save, but that we are saved. We don't do it. God did. And God is still working in us. So when the world feels like it's crumbling around you, but the wickedness of society says, "Ah, it's fine. And then upon further investigation, you realize, indeed... The world is crumbling around you. Remember what you have in Christ. Because what you have in Christ is inseparable from what you are in Christ. Remember the stable foundation of your faith. Action item number three in the task list of faith. Evaluate your belief in light of the truth. We've seen pass on the gospel as it was passed to you. Remember the stable foundation of your faith. Thirdly and finally, evaluate your belief in light of the truth. He has this little caveat at the end of verse 2. He says, If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Everything that I've said to you this morning is true only if you prove to be an authentic Christian. There are those who believe in God. There are those who believe in the facts of the gospel. There are those who saw it, were present, but they have not confessed Jesus as Lord. And thus they are not Christians. What is the proof of genuine faith? He says, "Holding fast to the word preached, that is holding fast to the gospel, which results in fruit." So, the truth that I am asking you to evaluate your belief in light of is the gospel and fruit. As a contextual side note, Paul is, as I mentioned, introducing this section of his letter where he will be confronting the Corinthians on the wrong view of the resurrection. The resurrection is a core component of the gospel and is thus a core component of our belief. If you do not hold firmly to all of the gospel, including the resurrection, then your believing may be in vain. If you believe Jesus was just a good man, then your belief is in vain. It is the entirety of the gospel that we hold fast to. What Paul means by all this is simply that some believe to whatever degree the facts of the gospel, but there was no true conversion. So the belief is in vain, literally to no purpose. When Paul says that we must hold fast, he is not advocating that we save ourselves through our works. We know that's not true. Or even that we retain our salvation through human effort, otherwise we lose it. We also know that's not true. He is simply reiterating a principle that is found throughout the scriptures, and the principle is this true saving faith results in a changed life. A changed life is created and empowered by God, but takes effort on our part to be holy, to put off sin, to repent. Philippians 2 tells us to work out our salvation. It's a command. You do it, Christian. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Praise God for verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We both have our part. Where you end and He begins is not clear, but we know that we are to excel and to do as much as we can for righteousness and holiness. When we talk about holding fast, any true believer would do this, But we know those. There are those who we went to church with. We grew up in church with them. Some of these people led us to Christ either through one on one conversations or preaching because they were our pastor. Someone who gives up, who later in life says, It's not for me, turns away from Christ, turns away from church, they didn't hold fast, they didn't endure. Again, not because salvation is won through human strength and stamina, but because, and this is so important, true faith is victorious at the moment of salvation, meaning that the race will be finished by those who come to Christ. So test yourselves. He says this in his second letter that we have to the Corinthians in verse 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? He's essentially saying the same thing. Jesus Christ is in you, unless you prove to have believed in vain in our text for this morning. So we need to test ourselves. And keep in mind, both of these letters, he refers to them as beloved and brethren. But he knows that there may be some within the church that call themselves brethren. He believes they're brethren, but aren't true brethren. This failing of the test is the same thing as I said regarding believing in vain. Again, not a believer, a true believer who loses their salvation. That doesn't happen, that is impossible but proof that they were never saved in the first place. And this answers the question that comes up from time to time. Well, what is that then? What is going on? How do you explain someone's heart and faith if they were once a faithful Christian, but now are living a worldly life rejecting Christ away from the church? Here's the answer. They are a believer in sin that needs to repent, or they were never a believer in the first place. And this second category is what Paul is addressing here and in 2 Corinthians. I think the scariest part of this is that they did believe. He says it right there in the verse. But the belief was not sincere. Or it wasn't belief in the right gospel, which includes all of the gospel. They didn't believe the reality of the gospel. They didn't believe every part of the gospel. Not women's roles, not views on gifts. The gospel. And in a way, we circle back to the beginning. Because what is it that verse 2 says they were to believe that which Paul preached? And if believing what he preached is enough to be saved... Then we know he is preaching the full gospel, and so must we. We must preach the gospel. It is by the gospel by which people are saved, by which we were saved. So, preach the gospel. What do we preach? The gospel. Preach the gospel. Roger, why do you keep saying that? Because we are not to preach to the unbeliever morality. We do not preach pro-life. We do not preach one-woman-one-man marriage. We do not preach church attendance, not honesty in the workplace, not even loving one another. We preach the gospel. Changing their view on abortion does not save them. Getting them to stop embezzling from your boss does not save them rejecting a homosexual lifestyle does not save them. We believe all of those things, but it's not what saved us. It's not what's going to save others. It's not what we are to preach. We preach Christ. Why do we preach those other things? Perhaps it's a fear of man. And so we say, well... It's in the news. They know that there are people who believe these things in our country, and so it's easier to just say, oh, I'm on this side of the aisle. And so we somehow think that that is okay because we preached something we believe, but that's not going to save them. Perhaps you are just more worked up about politics than you are about Christ. And I know many Christians... Thankfully, not in this church, but many Christians who that's especially the case because of our last president. And so they preach Trump or they preach anti Trump. And what they leave is a trail of people who are angry, confused, and no one's saved. No one has even had the opportunity to be saved. No one has even had the opportunity to reject the gospel because the gospel was never preached. You need to feel strongly about things. You are human. That's fine. I feel strongly about things. I feel strongly about things regarding my children. But as a father, not as a pastor, but as a Christian father, if my children grow up and they're in college, you say, yeah, I was checking out that college and I ran into your son, and wow, he really drinks a lot and sleeps around, doesn't he? I say, I, that's strange. I taught him those were, things were wrong. I, I taught him morality. I tried to discipline him. But you preach the gospel to him, right? No. I just wanted him to be a gentleman. A good kid, excel in academics, treat people well, have manners. I wouldn't just want you to, I would force you to leave this church if your pastor was doing that kind of nonsense. You would say, Are you kidding me? You never shared the gospel with your kids? Just morality? Just how to vote? How to treat women, how to eat properly, how to discipline for studies. But we're doing that with our parents. We're doing that with our coworkers. Some of us are doing that with our spouses. It's fine to have views on things, but not if it pushes out the gospel. Ladies, maybe this will resonate with you more because of what you're studying in women's group. Maybe we're like Jonah. You'd rather just get in a fight with that guy than have him join the fold. You would never say that. That's horrible. But you think that. And again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. We still have sin. We live in a world of sin. People, the Society says, pick fights. That's good. Tell your opinion. Hate people. Don't love everyone. You have enemies, hate them. That's natural. That's normal. That's the world. So you say, okay. And so we jab and we hurt instead of forgiving and preaching the gospel. Here's the ultimate point that Paul is making. That the Corinthian believers we're living evidence of the truth of the gospel. And so are we. And here's Paul's second point. So do something about it. And so must we. Pass on the gospel as it was passed to you. Remember the stable foundation of your faith and evaluate your belief in light of the truth. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the privilege of being and shepherding sinful, broken, hurting people because it reminds us of the need and the privilege of the gospel. Help us to be people who respond not just to our hurts, not just to our frustrations, not just to our trials, but to the gospel. May we be faithful to reflect on it, to live according to it, to preach it. If there are any on this live stream or in person this morning that don't know you, may you bring them to saving knowledge of you. May those around us recognize that and preach to them the gospel. And may that bleed out to our relatives, to our co-workers, to our friends, to our enemies, to those that we love and those we're angry with. Help us to, in our own lives, individually, whatever everyone's circumstances are. Give us the wisdom, Lord. Please give us the wisdom and discernment how to balance living life but preaching the gospel, living out the gospel, reflecting the gospel, testing to see if we're truly saved so that we don't get overwhelmed with the realities of human frailty and sickness and pain, with the realities of impending war, with the realities of Political wickedness. Help us to know how to prioritize the gospel for our own godly living as well as for our evangelism. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Well, let's stand.